Before we pray and read, I want to let you know that this scripture that we're going to study today, about a decade ago, really, I would say, changed my life. About a decade ago, when I was really struggling with sin, in a particular way, this passage of scripture changed my life pretty dramatically. So I hope that it has that same force for you this morning. But we will see. Let's pray, and then we'll read Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Before we read it, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we were made to love you, and we do. We love you, and I pray that our love for you would be stirred up even more for being here this morning. And as we read your word, we would encounter you. Lord, please speak as powerfully through this word to us this morning as you did to me a decade ago. Uh, That's my prayer, and I trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, as we want to honor God and his word, if you're able, would you please stand as we read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14? Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'll read that verse again. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Okay, thank you for standing. We're so grateful that we have God's word to read together. You may be seated. All of these passages in Romans are just so packed full of, of meat. We could spend the rest of the year unraveling this passage and all of the glorious things that are in there. But we won't. We'll spend just this morning, and I promise it won't feel like a year. I want to give you a little context to help us understand how this passage starts off. It starts off, what shall we say then? It's a strange way to start off a new passage. If you'll remember, up to this point in Romans, we've talked a lot about the gospel. A lot about the gospel and the grace that we have in the gospel. And Paul's trying to bring these two groups of Christians together. The uh, Jewish Christians who 
are who are prone toward legalism, who are prone toward uh, traditions and the activities of the faith, and these Gentile Christians who are sort of new to the fold and they don't have all these traditions and they're just loving the grace that they found in Jesus. They're coming from these pagan backgrounds. So you have people who, you know, just last week probably went to a temple where they worshipped another god uh, by being with a prostitute. Now Christians joined with these really religious Jewish people. Paul's trying to bring them all together. Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, people prone to legalism, people prone to license. In other words, people prone to rules and people prone toward the freedom that we have in Christ. And so far, I think Paul has primarily been sticking it to the Jewish Christians, uh, just talking up that we are all in much worse shape than we ever dared dream, but the grace of God is much greater than we ever dared dream. So we don't have a chance of earning our righteousness by works. But God's grace is so lavish that he looks at us and he sees perfection because we're hidden with Christ. That's sort of been the overall theme, and that's kind of how uh, last week's passage ended. Um, But the fact of the matter is ridiculous grace, which is what we have in Jesus, it equals ridiculous freedom. Ridiculous grace equals ridiculous freedom. If I tell my son, like I've told you before, God says to us in Christ, I love you maximum all the time. It doesn't matter if you do wonderfully or if you do horribly. My love for you is not dependent upon your performance. That's how God is toward us as Christians. He loves you maximum. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about he sent his son to die for you with full view of all of your darkest moments for your whole life. He knew the worst of you, and he still sent Jesus to die for you. He loves you maximum all the time. He loves you maximum if you sell all your possessions today, give it all to the poor, and go to Uganda to take the gospel to unreached tribes. And he loves you maximum if you storm out of here today because you're sick of hearing me talk and you go and get drunk. He still loves you maximum. That's, that's kind of scandalous. If that's the case, how are we going to motivate godly behavior? I was trying to think of how this passage might touch us mostly. I think in a couple of ways you have what I just said, how, how are we going to motivate the behavior we're looking for. Um, I think a good example might be with the drinking aspect of things. I would bet if I interviewed each of you, some of you would say it is a sin to take a sip. Stay away. It's too dangerous. And some of you would say, well, no, I'm free in Christ. He never said drinking was a sin. He said drunkenness was a sin. Just like he never said eating was a sin. He said gluttony is a sin. Just like he never said a female is a sin, lust is a sin. So some of you feel your freedom, your license in Christ. We have ridiculous grace, so we have ridiculous freedom. Some of you feel like you could go to a bar tonight and it'd be fine. Others, you feel the the weight of the standards of holiness and you say, no, you've got to have some rules in place. You've got to have some barriers around yourself to protect yourself from sin. So the rule is no drinking. I wonder which one each of you would fall into. You know, I'm not going to make you raise your hands and say... Um, I think in those sort of debates, this passage is helpful. Um, 
I think another way this touches us is how do you, not just how do you motivate people not to sin, but how do you motivate people to do the good positive things we're called to? I had a conversation just this week with someone who is frustrated about our Sunday school attendance. And they were just, where is everybody? How do we get people? What do we need to do? How do we motivate people to do things that we want to do as a church like Sunday school or whatever? Sunday school is just the first example, but whatever. What am I to do? I want so badly for each of you to just be all week long just up to your eyeballs in the word and growing in your understanding of it and your passion for God and and looking around and just growing deep in your concern for people. And I want you, you to be engaged making disciples. I want that very badly. I want that more badly than anything else I want at this church. How am I to motivate you to do that? What would you do? How would you motivate it? I think it's interesting the approach that Paul takes. I think what is typical, and probably what I've done a lot, what is typical is to say, you are not doing fill-in-the-blank, start doing fill-in-the-blank, because God said so. Or you're doing fill-in-the-blank, stop doing fill-in-the-blank, because God said so. But that's not the approach God takes in his word, especially as he conveys the gospel through Paul. Let's look at what Paul says. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Uh, basically, the picture we've gotten so far is the more sinful we are, just the more gracious our Lord is. That's how awesome he is. So what, should we just keep sinning so grace would abound? What does he say? By no means. How can we? How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? He doesn't say, no, you shouldn't sin, so don't. He says, how, how could we? And then he points to something that's already true. See, basically, here, here's the big scheme of things, the way Paul approaches behavior. Um, he never just comes straight and says, you need to do this, you need to stop doing this. He floods all of his letters with things that are true about you as Christians. And then based on that, he says, do what you ought to do, stop doing what you shouldn't do. Mainly his emphasis is, is on things that are already true for us in Christ. So in this case, the truth is, if you're a Christian, and by, by Christian I mean if you're one who all of your hope is in Jesus for your security in this life and beyond, and the one that you seek to obey every day is Jesus. That's what I mean by Christian, not you're a member of Dolan's Grove. If you're a Christian, by that definition, you are dead to sin. You are. I'm not here to tell you, die to sin, Christians. You need to die to it. The fact is, you are dead to sin. It's not become what you're supposed to be, it's become what you already are. That's what we're about as Christians. I don't want you to become something that you're supposed to be. I want you to become what you already are in Christ. And I know that's confusing. By the end of the sermon, Lord willing, it'll make perfect sense. I think that many of us operate by a misunderstanding of what it means uh, to be saved, born again, to become a Christian. 
I think that many people in our churches think that when you become a Christian, you're committing to try to be a better person, a better you. You're saying, I want to look more like Jesus. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to abide by the rules. But in reality, that's not what becoming a Christian is at all. Jesus always referred to it as new birth. So that becoming a Christian is not trying to become a better you. It's being reborn as a whole new creature. Christianity is not about reforming yourself. It's about rebirthing yourself. And this totally new you is dead to sin and alive to God. So the best metaphor or analogy, whichever of those two this is, I could think of for this is the classic, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Christianity is not you becoming a sleeker, better caterpillar, able to crawl around the dirt better. It's about total transformation into a new creature with totally new abilities and a totally new life. And as a, as a butterfly is dead to the dirt and alive to the sky, Christians are dead to sin and alive to God. As a butterfly is dead to ground and dirt and alive to the air and the skies, Christians are dead to sin and alive to God. It's, it's done. That's a fact. You have your, your wings. So questions of legalism versus license are never solved on the activity level. They're only solved on the identity level. Some of us aren't clear on who we are in Christ. We're new creatures. Do you think you would ever, if you could speak butterfly, I guess it would be some combination of wing flaps, I don't know. If you could speak butterfly and you were to overhear conversations with butterflies, do you think you would ever hear them arguing amongst themselves about if it's okay for them to return to crawling around the dirt? You know, I think we're free. I mean, yeah, we can fly, but we're free to go back and crawl around the dirt if we want to. And the other butterfly was like, no, I don't think so. You might lose your wings or something. We might get in trouble. We better stick to the air. I know it looks great down there, but we better stick to the air. No, I don't think butterflies are that stupid. Yet we, who are dead to sin, freed from sin, alive to God, are all the time wondering about how close can we get back to the dirt? How, which, which, uh, how much proximity to sin is okay? When in reality, that's not even a question. Who wants it? Who, how could we? Who, who wants it? which frees us to just live. And it frees some of you to, to be around your non-Christian friends who do drink and who do go to places where sin happens because you're not going to be there thinking, oh, I want that. Oh, I want to get sloppy drunk and sin like crazy and lose control of my tongue and say a bunch of simple stuff and lose control of my, my brain. I really want to do that, but I'm a Christian. No, as a Christian, you grow and you're understanding that that's dirt, garbage, and you have God. You're dead to that. You're alive to God. You don't want it. You don't need it. But there's more, there's more power here than just uh, answering arguments about drinking or motivating people to come to Sunday school. Um, 
the claims about our identity in Christ are staggering. I just want to read to you what this passage claims about us as Christians. It's staggering. Okay, so if you phased out, come back. We're getting back into the Word and off of my weird butterfly stories. Okay, what this passage says is true about us as Christians. Uh, Let's start. We've already said we're dead to sin and and we can't live it anymore. Look at verse 3. Everybody who's been baptized into Christ Jesus was baptized into his death. So you who have been baptized, and he's talking about the deeper spiritual meaning here, but, you know, it's connected with our literal dipping you under the water, bringing you back up. I always say the same spiel. You know, it's like the, the old you is left underneath the water and the new you comes, comes back. There's a very real death that happens when you become a Christian. When you're baptized into Christ Jesus, you're baptized into his death. That has already happened. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with them by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It says you were buried with him. This old you, this old sinful you, it was buried. Was. Happened. Past tense. Already. So that this new you could come forth walking in newness of life. I saw this graphically on the side of my tire the other day in my carport. I walked outside. It was late because we were uh, setting up Lillian's big girl bed, and I was getting it ready. And I walked outside, and on the tire was this bizarre-looking little creature. And some of you who know insects will know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't know what kind of bug this was, but there was this dry husk of a, a bug attached to my tire and this ridiculously, vibrantly green creature climbing out of the back of this, this husk of a bug. Do you guys know what this bug is? You might know what the name of it is. Is that what it is? Okay, cicada. Okay, I don't. I don't know. I grew up in the country, but I don't know know jack about animals and bugs and stuff. But I walked out and I saw this ugly husk of a bug, and then coming out of it, this vibrant new bug. And it's really a very good example of what this is. That old you that loved all that dirt, all that sin. It's just a husk. And out of that has climbed the new you. That old you is dead. It is dead. It's dead. Okay, what else does it say about us that's staggering? Uh, verse 5. For if we have been united with him, Jesus, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So again, just another way of saying the same thing. You're dead. The old you is dead. The you that loved sin is dead. The you that was connected to sin is dead. Dead, 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 already done, dead. Dead. It's already happened. So, you know, picture the sin in your life that you love or loved. When Christ was nailed to that cross, it wasn't just him hanging there. Your sin was there too, dying. Another one, uh, verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Oh, I just jumped ahead of myself but you get my point, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that, and I really like this metaphor, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You know, sin is, is slavery. 
I read an article this week about how the addiction, I mean, the disease metaphor has taken over our language when we talk about alcoholism. The disease metaphor has just totally taken over how we think about people who are prone to and enslaved to drink. When in reality, it started as a metaphor and then eventually people forgot it was ever a metaphor. And so now we assume that it, you know, the genetic, uh, the seemingly genetic pinpointers must be a cause and it has a physical cause, therefore it's a disease. But they don't, that's not proven. They don't know. It's, you know, the, uh, the genetic factors in alcoholism don't seem statistically to have any more of an effect on whether someone will be alcoholic than do who your peers are or your socioeconomic class. It's just another factor. But, you know, disease is a helpful metaphor to think about it. But biblically, slavery is probably an even better one. Uh, The sins that enslave us, they're cruel masters. And we can't free ourselves except to just die. You're freed from your master when you die. And the new you is born and is free. Um, But this says that's already happened. The, The big idea here is separation. You've been separated like through a death from your sin. Like when you hear someone say, you're dead to me. Yeah, it doesn't mean that you're literally dead. It's, you're dead to me. You're, I'm cut off from you. We're cut off from our sin. Okay, I've been going on at this for a while. I hope in some of you there's a little pressure building up in your minds and you're thinking, what? I'm not experiencing any of this. This freedom from sin, this death to sin. I'm experiencing bondage to sin and temptation to sin all the time. Are any of you feeling that way? Are you experiencing that that you're dead to sin? That when temptation comes knocking on your door, you might as well be a corpse on the other side of that door? That's as much as you respond to it because you're dead to it? Are you experiencing that? Does it feel to you like your sin is at the bottom of a baptismal pool somewhere, totally separated from you? Or entombed behind a huge rock somewhere? Does it feel like you've been freed from your slavery? If all this stuff is true, all this past tense stuff is true, why aren't we experiencing sinlessness? What do you think? I mean, I know you can't answer. Will said he was going to start a uh, back and forth during this service. Um, But think for yourself, why is this? If all this is true, why do you struggle with the sin you struggle with? Why do I struggle with the sin I struggle with as Christians? We have all these past statements about what has been done for us. And then we have some future statements, too, that are in there. Um, You know, all this is true. We've died, but we're certainly going to be resurrected like Jesus. We're going to live like Jesus. And at the very end, uh, verse 14, it says, For sin will have no dominion over you. It will have no dominion over you since you are under grace, not under law. More on that grace law thing next week. But all of a sudden he jumps to future. Sin will have no dominion over you. You're totally dead to it. In the past, that's happened. And in the future, it will have no dominion over you. But what about the present? What about the present? I think the best way to look at this is in a war, uh, to use, I guess, another metaphor, It's as though Jesus has already won the war, but there are still enemy occupants 
in the land, so battles continue to rage. But he's already won. The victory's been decided. And in the future, the victory will be fulfilled. All the enemy will be gone. But in the meantime, battles still rage. So your battle with sin will continue until he comes back and establishes his rule forever. But the victory's already been decided. Does that make sense? I see puzzled expressions. The war has been won, but there's still battles continuing until it's fully died down and over. Let that give you some hope, first off. You who are enslaved to some particular sin that you can't seem to stop. All the decisive victories have been won. Now it's just for you to work out the reality of it in your life. And Paul gives us how to do so, I think, here. He gives us some practical things. And I know people like practical things. I don't even have a watch, but I do have my phone, so I do have time. And I find it so interesting, the first thing he says. Uh, Practically, the only thing he gives us to do. So far, he's talking about sin. You would think he'd jump right into what to do about it. Stop doing it. Do this instead. Here's some techniques. Uh, Join an accountability group. Um, Whatever. But he doesn't. He tells us all this stuff that's true in the gospel. Then he gives us some practical things in verse 11. So you also must consider. It's really the first verb he uses for things we need to be doing now in the present. You must consider. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The root of that word consider, it's, it's the same. I'm sorry, I said that backwards. That word consider is part of the same root that we use for logic. It has a, a very mental aspect to it, very reasoning uh, kind of thought there. To compute is like the proper definition of it. To reason to a logical conclusion. I just think it's interesting that his first uh, activity for us to do in finishing out these battles against sin is a mental activity of considering Reasoning, using logic. Yeah, we want to jump to very visible ways of controlling our, our sin, but he just wants us to get straight in our heads who we are in Christ already. I think when a Christian lives in ongoing sin, in a large part, it's a failure to fully think through the implications of what's already been done for them in the gospel. We are dead to sin. I think many Christians have an inadequate understanding of their power over sin. I think many of you are enslaved to things that have no right over you. I think it's an inadequate understanding of the glory that is available to us in God. So we spend so much time negatively trying to avoid sin when in reality, we're already dead to that anyway. Turn toward the most glorious thing in the universe. God, that we were made to love, as some are saying. But we have a a shallow, shallow mindset on these things. We pursue our shallow pleasures through the week, not fully comprehending the power that is ours and the glory that is ours in the gospel. So we crawl in dirt rather than fly, like a butterfly that just doesn't understand, hasn't thought through the implications that he doesn't have to crawl around in dirt anymore. 
And then he gives three other things that I think are, are work themselves out from that first one. In verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Just note quickly how passive that is. Let not. The action here is just simply to stop letting something happen. The indication is if you're living in sin, it's something you're allowing to just happen that you don't have to. Thirteen A is a third one. Present not another passive one. Present do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Stop letting sin rule your lives. Stop giving your eyeballs over to sin, your ears over to sin, your stomach over to sin, your liver over to sin, your hands over to sin. Just stop doing it. You don't have to do it. Stop. Just turn from that garbage you're dead from and turn to God who you're alive to. That's the final one. But present yourselves to God as those who have been bought, brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. This kind of gets close to what we were talking about in Sunday school. Um, for the three of you who are in Sunday school, you'll know what I'm talking about. In your battle against sin, don't just fight negatively trying to avoid and come up with all these legalistic rules to not sin. It's way more powerful to turn toward the positive of what our lives are supposed to be about. Cultivating a deep passion for God, a deep concern for people, and making your whole life about making disciples. Don't spend all your energy trying to avoid something that has no power over you to begin with. Spend your energy turning from that toward the glories of what you're called to. None of you need be enslaved to sin of any sort. It's just totally unnecessary. Turn from that and get about, get about. That's great, great uh, grammar, man. Get about good stuff. <laughs> some, some old preacher, I don't know who it was, a writer, um, had a sermon titled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That's old-time language. But basically he was saying, if you have an affection that's sinful, the best way to get rid of it isn't to try to extract it all, but to pour in a new affection that's greater, and it'll just make it where there's no room for it anymore. So think about the sin that plagues you. I'm winding down. Think about the sin that plagues you. What is it? Is it something obvious, one of the obvious ones, you know, lust? Um, I don't know, you steal stuff. I don't know what it might be for everybody. For all I know, there might be people who steal stuff in here. People have secrets. Um, is it adultery the way Jesus talked about it? If you look after a woman with lust, you're committing adultery. Is it um, just discontentedness with what God gave you to where you're always, maybe some of you women are always watching HGTV thinking, why do I live in this piece of dump when I could live in that? I'm so unhappy. Is it um, gossip? And let me just say, yes, it is for many of you, gossip. Uh, some of you, if you lost your ears or your tongue, a lot of trouble would, would end abruptly. Um, do you just transmit gossip? You know it's sin, but you just get on the phone. It's so juicy, and it just gets your mind off of you and your problems, and you love it. Um, I don't know. I know what mine are. I'm not going to tell you what they are. What, what is yours? Because there's two possibilities if you're, if you're habitually sinning. A, 
you're not a Christian. You have no clue what I'm up here talking about. New creature, dead to all this stuff. All you know, all you live and breathe is your sin, your self-centeredness. You, you need to come talk to me and we'll talk about Jesus and make clear what it means to become a Christian. You just need to become a Christian already. Uh, Another possibility, you are a Christian and you're not considering well enough what's true about you in the gospel. I didn't even touch on probably another big one that is definitely for everybody, worry and anxiety. You know, God says be anxious for nothing. So that means when you're anxious for anything, it's sin. It's missing the mark. Um, I'm not sitting here saying these things like I'm perfect in all these things. I'm anxious every single Sunday morning that I'm about to come speak. Um, But I don't have to be, and you don't have to be. It has no real power over us. Uh, So we're going to sing a song now. I'm going to pray for you now. And I want you to feel free during the song, after the song, pray through the reality of this about your sin. Don't be thinking about somebody else's sin right now. This is about me thinking about me and you thinking about you. Think about the sin that you wrestle with most and pray through the realities that you're dead to it. It has no power over you in reality. Pray through the ways to turn from that toward the positive. If it's anxiety from that toward a more uh, serious passion for knowing God's promises and trusting God's promises. Uh, If it's gossip, pray through how to turn from that wicked use of your tongue toward the positive use of your tongue, to encourage, to comfort, to admonish people who are calling themselves Christians and are in sin, to make disciples, to tell people about Jesus. Just pray through how to turn from your sin toward presenting yourself and your members to God. Okay? I feel a little loopy today. I might still be a little sick. But thank you all for listening. Um, I love you all very much. And I'm dead serious when I say that there is nothing I want more as your pastor than to see your love for God just engulf you completely. Your concern for people to grow way deeper than your concern for yourself. And to see you in your own unique way, in your own unique spheres, start to make disciples. Tell people about Jesus. Help people along in their walk. Um, That's what I really, really want. Pastor appreciation will be sometime. Uh, Give me a basket of that. And some gift cards to places to eat. That's nice, too. But mainly, all that stuff. Okay, I'm going to pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Um, What a powerful passage of Scripture. I I am so inadequate to convey the power of that passage, but your Holy Spirit is not. And I pray that it would work in our hearts. Um, None of the truth that was shared today, I pray that none of it would... uh, escape our attention as we head out of here toward our lunch and our day and our afternoon and our week. Um, For those who are not Christians in this room, please make that crystal clear and save their souls. For those who are, please give them supernatural, a supernatural ability to consider themselves dead to sin and alive to you. And work that out in practical ways to stop letting sin reign, to start obeying you, to stop presenting their, their body parts to sin and start presenting their whole selves to you. Lord, we need your help and we trust that you will because you are so gracious. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the ridiculous grace 
that's in there and the ridiculous freedom that we have and the ridiculous change it brings about in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.